Welcome to another episode of the podcast Unbecoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. You'll find Unbecoming on Twitter at UnbecomingPod and Instagram at UnbecomingPodcast. If you have any questions or comments or suggestions for the podcast, let us know by writing to UnbecomingPodcast, that's all one word, UnbecomingPodcast at gmail.com. And if you're interested in supporting the work of this podcast, I invite you to go to patreon.com slash unbecomingpodcast and choose a level of membership. I've titled this podcast Unbecoming because all of us are on a journey in which we continue to change. Just as an example, I recently came across a study of people in their, in their 50s. The study found that most people entering the fifth decade of life assumed they had already been formed in the people who they'd be. Yet the study found that most participants discovered that their 50s were years in which they changed their minds significantly about things, became open to ideas that they might have ignored before, and gave up certain ideas because they came to see them as unrealistic or untrue. The French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre famously said that we could only evaluate our lives at the end, since as long as we are alive, we are still in process. We have not yet become what we will become. There is, if you stop a moment, a lovely thought in that point. Namely, that if you haven't become who you ultimately will become, there's still time. You are not condemned to be who you are in the moment. Nietzsche said something similar to Sartre. Namely, only that which has no history is definable. The context for that statement was Nietzsche's exploration of the concept of punishment. His point is that a concept as ancient and complex as this could never be pinned down because it has been, is, and will continue to be in the constant process of changing or evolving. That's where all of us find ourselves. We're always still on the way, in the middle of a journey, precisely because we are historical beings. By the way, if you've ever thought that the podcast was actually called Unbecoming, starting with a U, that was also a thought I had in mind as I chose the title. Unbecoming means something like not appropriate, unsuitable, improper. But if you've been listening to the podcast, you'll probably have noticed that there is a good deal that involves questioning precisely what many people assume to be appropriate and proper. In the world in which I grew up, thinking outside of the box or coloring outside of the lines or whatever cliche you like could easily be perceived as unbecoming. Yet it's that very thought that I'm putting into question. Because we as individuals and we as a society are in constant change, and there is no way to keep change from happening. For instance, it wasn't very long ago that most people believed that marriage was only between a man and a woman. Many people still believe that. But to give just one example, by the time the Congress of the United States voted to allow same-sex marriage in 2015, most Americans were already on board. By 2021, a full 70% of American citizens were in favor of same-sex unions. The majority of Republicans supported it, and even support among older adults was at 60%. But those of us in the LGBTQ community realize that rights that have been gained can also be taken away. That's what women discovered when the Dobbs decision came down. They had assumed that abortion rights were settled, literally written into law, but they discovered that laws can change back in the other direction. 
It's precisely this question of propriety or appropriateness that's at the heart of what's going on in Florida today. If you've listened to a number of episodes, you'll know that the focus of the podcast isn't primarily on politics. Of course, that point needs an immediate addendum, namely that politics is everywhere, since politics has to do with all interaction that human beings have. In that sense, almost everything is political. And that point could be expanded to make the point that, say, economics is at work in everything. In fact, the term economics comes to us from ancient Greek, and it had to do with the art of running a household. The intellectual world is divided into different subjects like sociology, physics, psychology, philosophy, etc., which tend to have their own concerns and emphases. Yet if we want to analyze society or simply ourselves, we need to take all of that into account. You have almost certainly heard that there are some changes in education going on in Florida. One of these concerns a new Florida law, House Bill 1467 to be exact, which requires that books be free of pornographic material, as well as being age-appropriate. You can probably already hear at least two problems in that statement. While there is definitely material that most of us, if not all, would label pornographic, establishing where the border lies between something being explicitly sexual and pornographic may be a little difficult to establish in some instances. In case you're wondering, could a health book that details the human body and its functions be considered to be pornographic? I don't think so, but one of the most disturbing features of HB 1467 is that it is extremely vague. You might think, okay, vague allows for a certain amount of interpretation, so it's a more open category. But that's exactly the problem. If you listen to the episode on me getting tenure, you might remember the school where I was teaching and had applied for tenure had virtually no guidance for junior faculty who were trying to balance out the various responsibilities, teaching, grading, seeing students, attending committee meetings, along with making sure one has published enough. As I mentioned in the episode, there was no guidance as to what enough was. Again, you might think this is a tangential point, but it is absolutely central. For getting tenure means that you probably have a job for life. Not getting tenure means you probably need to start selling insurance or become a barista. The situation for teachers in Florida isn't exactly the same. In many ways, it's much worse. You can't get a felony for failing to get tenure, but you can get one in Florida for having the wrong sort of books on your shelf, whether those books are those of the teacher or of the school library. But the problem is even worse. As one person said to the local school board at a meeting, there is no clear distinction between discussion or instruction. Can people even have those rainbow stickers? Can we talk about Stonewall even happening? We don't know exactly where the line is. As we'll see in this episode, the real problem is that both telling the truth and pointing out injustice may get you a felony. Yes, what's at stake here is truth and justice. Put in blunt terms, if you're a teacher in Florida, will you need to lie? Perhaps you might think that teachers can just stay quiet, but I don't see how that's really an option. If the textbook you have been assigned to teach is untruthful, do you simply teach whatever it says, even when you know it's not true? Or do you try to correct the lie, the untruth, by telling students that it isn't true and then telling them what actually is true? 
The problem here is that lying would seem to be the best option if you want to keep your job. But lying is exactly what we, at least normally, don't want teachers to do. Further, withholding truth from students can be considered a form of lying if that withholding is done deliberately. The question here is, what sort of rights do children have to the truth? Do they deserve to know what is and is not true? I'll come back to this point a little later. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has responded to the criticism of the bill by calling it a book ban hoax. He says it's a, and I'm quoting, a nasty hoax because it's a hoax in service of trying to pollute and sexualize our children. That's the end of the quote. As far as the book ban goes, it isn't even remotely a hoax. It's become enshrined in law. But now how, how DeSantis characterizes it. Those in favor of not banning the books would want to pollute and sexualize our children. By its very definition, there isn't any way in which the word pollute can be considered positive. However, you can see that the term, while it's obviously bad, doesn't specify anything about what pollution would be. So a statement like this ends up being more or less, bad is bad. It doesn't say anything. In terms of sexualizing children, we should remember that they already come sexualized, and they undergo enormous changes in adolescence that make them even more aware of and interested in sexuality. But that's just part of being human and going through adolescence. Neither parents nor politicians nor teachers can stop that process, even if they might want to try and slow it down. However, what DeSantis clearly wants is to simply have teachers remain quiet about anything to do with sexuality as well as some other things. We'll get to that in a moment. The point is fear, just as the point of my college not having any tenure guidelines were also about instilling fear. Why is it that we would want the people who educate our children to be afraid? You probably realize that there is a shortage of teachers in many places, and such rules are a significant part of the problem. Seriously, why open yourself up to a felony charge when you could probably make a lot more money doing something that doesn't carry this risk? When asked to clarify the situation, DeSantis just made it worse. He said, there were reports saying, oh, teachers were so worried, you know, they may end up being charged with third-degree felony for having books in their classroom. Long-standing Florida law says it's unlawful for adults to provide pornography to minors. But, of course, he still doesn't provide any guidance as to what he thinks counts as pornography. You've probably heard the famous quote from Chief Justice Potter Stewart about obscenity. While he admits that he's not able to define it properly, he says, I know it when I see it. But in whose eyes will something count as pornography? DeSantis seems to imply that such pornographic material is just about everywhere in schools. But when specific books were removed, only 22% were considered to be pornographic. And, and we'll see in just a moment that this label is highly suspect. The rest of the books were defined as inappropriate, a label that any given mom or dad might use for certain content for their own children, but which might be seen by another mom and dad as perfectly fine. If you want an example, I'm sometimes surprised at how leniently shows on Netflix are rated. I'm primarily referring to graphic violence, though I fully understand that this is a very subjective category. As to what counts as pornographic, 
Florida law states that such material would be, and I'm quoting, any picture, photograph, drawing of a person or portion of the human body which depicts nudity or sexual content, sexual incitement, excitement. And then it goes on to list things that most people wouldn't want their children to see, namely sexual battery, bestiality, and sadomasochistic abuse. However, all of those things are listed, but then the additional phrase, harmful to minors, is included. On a fairly basic reading of that statute, it appears that not all sexual content is harmful to minors, according to Florida law. I mentioned those last three, battery, bestiality, and sadomasochistic abuse, because I suspect most people, certainly myself, would consider exposing children to such things as harmful. But Florida law is even more specific. For something to be harmful, it must meet all three criteria. Here's the first. And uh, I'm, by the way, these are all quotations from the law itself. Number one, appealing to a period shameful or morbid interest. Number two, is patently offensive to prevailing standards in the adult community as a whole with respect to what is suitable material or conduct for minors. And number three, taken as a whole, is without serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value for minors. If you're listening carefully, you've probably just picked up on the point that these are vague standards, but also that any book which does have serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value for minors cannot be deemed pornographic. For instance, adolescents often have an interest in the magazine National Geographic because of the pictures of people and cultures where, shall we say, people don't cover up quite as much. I don't think anyone is going to seriously suggest that National Geographic counts as porn. Or at least that's what I thought, but unfortunately, no, I'm not so sure. One of the books that's been banned by Florida is titled House and Homes. Parents Magazine named it one of the best books of the year when it came out in 1995. The book is designed to show and explain the various kinds of houses people live in across the world. But it happened to contain a picture of a parent picking up a very young child who had naked buttocks. The reason for providing this example is that it should be clear that it simply doesn't meet the criteria. There's nothing purient, shameful, or morbid about a parent caring for a child. I don't think most adults would blink an eye over such a picture, so it's clearly not offensive to most adults. And showing kids how other people in the world live, doesn't that have a pretty high educational value? I wish such a book had been available to me when I was a kid. Of course, I can't help but think that there might be another motive here, one that goes unstated. Given that the book depicts homes and houses across the world, it does have the effect of showing Florida kids that people who live in other countries might not have it so good. Perhaps that would become a source of white guilt, which can be defined as the recognition of unearned or unfair racial privileges. I suspect that such a concern is more likely the real reason, for students might just start to wonder why some people who live in other countries are poor. So it's best to leave children in the dark. In case you're asking if this might simply be some kind of anomaly, consider this title, The Sleeping Beauty, written by Trina Shart Hyman, who has won the Caldecott Medal four times, a medal that goes to the most distinguished American picture book for children and is awarded by the Association for Library Science 
two children. So what's the problem with the book? Well, there's an illustration in which the queen is shown bathing. She has on a gauzy kind of covering, and some readers think that you can see the queen's buttocks. Having examined the picture in its full size, I don't think you can see anything, let alone anything purient or harmful to minors. But it does make you wonder a little bit about the people who judged that book to be pornographic. What were they thinking? Another book is titled, Guess What? And it's the story of Daisy O'Grady. The book ends with the reader discovering that Daisy is a witch, but that doesn't turn out to be the problem. Instead, it was that there was an illustration, remember these are photos, are not photos, but drawings, of Daisy taking a bath. The way the illustration is drawn, all the private parts have been discreetly hidden. There isn't anything pornographic or titillating about it. Just one more example. The book is Jeleni and the Lock, which is the story of a boy who was captured in Africa, then enslaved in the United States, and ultimately is freed. There simply isn't any sexual content in the book at all. Though the book was removed from the schools in Duval County in Florida because it was viewed as pornographic. Do you see a pattern emerging here? Again, since there's no sexual content, it's really hard to imagine how it could be pornographic. However, the story is about slavery in the United States. You're probably aware that many textbooks used in various states depict the Civil War as a conflict over states' rights. Others literally say that becoming slaves was a wonderful thing and that African Americans should be glad that they were brought to America and treated so well. Obviously, a book that tells the story of a child who's enslaved and then gains his freedom is going to undermine any narrative in which slavery turns out not to have been such a good thing after all. If slavery is such a great thing, why would the guy in the story not have preferred to continue his life as a slave? All of this is being done in the name of parents' rights. The idea that parents should have the final say about what their children should be taught. But what gives parents any special insight into what children should learn? I can imagine that if you have a doctorate in children's education, my father had a degree, a PhD, in children's education. You have probably been taught and thought a lot about what children should and shouldn't be taught. Not surprisingly, some educators, you know, the people who have actually received training on how to teach children, have reacted harshly to these new rules and this notion of parents' rights. Someone named Pat Barber, the union president of the Manatee Educational Association, has said, We have people who have spent their entire careers building their classroom libraries based on their professional and educational experience and understanding of the age of the children they teach. That just seems obvious. And it's why teachers are required to learn how and what to teach, and librarians are tasked with figuring out which books should be in their library. But as Barber goes on to note, now their professional judgment and training are being substituted for the opinion of anyone who wishes to review and challenge the books. We're focused on things that cause teachers to walk away from education because they can't focus on their mission of educating children. S3 teacher at Manatee High School says this, If you have a lot of books like I do, for probably several hundred, it's not practical to run all of them through the vetting process, so we have to cover them up. Yes, they simply cover the books with paper so the children can't see them. But as I've already observed, children clearly have some rights too. 
Conservatives often argue that unborn fetuses have a right not to be aborted, but it sounds like that just might be where their rights end, as soon as you're out of the womb. Just in case you're thinking something like, but doesn't the media or parents give students enough information? Consider this. At a meeting to discuss the bill and what it would mean, one teacher made the point students often come to her with questions about gender identity and sexual orientation because, as she puts it, they felt safe to ask me because they trusted me as their teacher and their parents, who opt into sexual education for their children, trusted me to answer them. Please understand, if students do not get their questions answered either by their trusted teachers or by those parents that are willing to talk with our children, they will likely find the answers from their peers or on the internet with dubious safety. In other words, this is really just parents washing their hands of the matter with teachers being forbidden to say much of anything regarding these aspects. One teacher has written of her own experience in dealing with this new law. She mentions the issue of books that are supposedly pornographic, but the real problem is that for students from kindergarten to the third grade, Books that deal with gender identity issues are banned too, as well as any books that discuss discrimination based on race, color, sex, or national origin. As she writes, on the surface it seems reasonable, but it goes much deeper. The bill does not name specific books to ban, nor a system to vet the books. It does, however, come with a fear-mongering threat of a Class three felony, which could cause a teacher to lose not only their teaching certificate, but their right to vote as well. I want to insert my own opinion here, namely that even on the surface, this just doesn't sound reasonable. But a further point goes like this. Many schools, including my own, do not have a full-time media specialist. Due to budget cuts, we have a media specialist every other week. That means we have one person to vet thousands of books in our school alone before we can have them in the classrooms. In addition to the amount of work laid in her lap, she hasn't even been given a system to vet the books with. Currently, it's a subjective process of a single person reviewing each book with a 12-point questionnaire. Again, and not surprisingly, she says, My teaching is affected. My heart doesn't feel in it as it once did. I'm furious that there's been talk of putting guns in teachers' hands, but I'm not trusted enough to put a book in a child's hand. And there you come to the absolutely crazy part. Teachers might be trusted with guns, but not books. Here I want to move to a term which names an important idea called intersectionality. Perhaps you've never heard of that term. It's a relatively new word. We all know what traffic intersections are, but intersectionality applies the idea of an intersection to human beings. In its simplest form, it's the idea that who we are cannot be reduced to simply one category. It's also the idea that since we are all constituted by various aspects of our being, all of those aspects need to be taken into consideration in terms of defining who we are. The person who coined this word is Kimberly Crenshaw, professor at the UCLA School of Law, also at Columbia Law School. And she's a recipient of an honorary doctorate from the school in Belgium where I did my doctorate. The term first appears in a very dense article with an equally dense title, Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex. And that's just the, that's the, the main title. The subtitle is even longer and more, more complicated. 
It was first published in the University of Chicago Legal Forum in 1989. In the very first paragraph, the reader is told that Crenshaw is attempting to show, quote, the problematic consequence of the tendency to treat race and gender as mutually exclusive categories of experience and analysis. Professor Crenshaw is a highly respected legal scholar, but her analysis begins with who she is, a black woman. She writes, with black women as a starting point, it becomes more apparent how dominant conceptions of discrimination condition us to think about subordination as disadvantage occurring along a single categorical axis. That's not exactly an easy sentence. Her point here is that if we're attempting to understand discrimination as just one thing or based on just one particular factor, we may fail to understand the actual reality. Note that in beginning her analysis in this way, she is able to argue that, and here I'm quoting, black women are sometimes excluded from feminist theory and anti-racist policy discourse because both are predicated on a discrete set of experiences that often does not accurately reflect the interaction of race and gender. What this means is that a good deal of feminist theory fails to address questions of race and how race affects what it means to be a woman. And yet because much of the discussion of racism has focused on the experience of black men, black women get sidelined from that perspective too. Crenshaw provides a really interesting example, namely the, the example of five black women who attempted to sue General Motors for discrimination. Their lawyer presented evidence that GM simply didn't hire black women prior to 1964, and that those that were hired after 1970 had lost their jobs because of layoffs due to restructuring. But the court decided that they didn't have a case, since there were no statutes that had to do with black women, even though there were statutes that had to do with women in general. Thus, the court decided that, and here I'm quoting, General Motors has hired female employees for a number of years prior to the enactment of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Since GM had hired white women during this period, in which no black women had been hired, the court determined that there had been no sex discrimination. In other words, these women who had brought the lawsuit could only be seen by the court as women rather than as black women. Here's what Anne Phoenix, a professor at the University of London, says. Intersectionality draws analytic attention to the fact that no social identity category exists in isolation of others. Rather, we all simultaneously position within multiple social categories, including gender, social class, sexuality, ability, disability, and racialization, among others. These categories reciprocally construct each other when they intersect, forming qualitatively different meanings and experiences that are situated in different contexts, times, and power relations. In a nutshell, intersectionality alerts us to the fact that we cannot understand a single category without appreciation of those around it. As a result, we can more accurately understand why and how treating these categories as separate would fail in producing a holistic understanding of social issues, policies, and research. To see ourselves from an intersectional point of view, we realize, for instance, that our political beliefs have something to do with our religious beliefs. From the intersectional point of view, one can come to understand oneself best when one is able to consider all the facets of one's life and how they work together to define who we are. 
I see this point as so obvious that it doesn't need any further argumentation. I think any of us would bristle if we were reduced to merely one category, religious guy, white woman, gay man. A little context, though, would be in order here. When Betty Friedan first published The Feminist Mystique in 1963, many women were emboldened to think that there might be more to life than staying at home. Naturally, some conservatives were not pleased with such thinking, and Rush Limbaugh actually came up with the term feminazis to demean anyone who claimed to be a feminist. But there was pushback from another quarter, namely the women of color who didn't see themselves on the pages of Friedan's book. They claimed that Friedan is a white woman, already had the privilege that they as black women didn't have, which was and still is obviously true. Thus, whereas the term feminism came to be seen as primarily a white phenomenon, women of color created the term womanism. It was Alice Walker in her book In Search of Our Mother's Garden, womanist prose, that gave us the term, and Walker describes a womanist as a black feminist or a feminist of color. Feminism is primarily concerned about equality between the sexes. Womanism is concerned about both sexism and racism. One interesting aspect of that is that womanism, because of its dual focus on racism and sexism, is also interested in the situation of men of color, because of course they are affected by racism too. Here's where intersectionality comes into play in the Florida law. As Laura McGinnis from the LGBTQ advocacy group PFLAG puts it, everyone has a sexual orientation and a gender identity. It looks like this rule would make it impossible to do much instruction at all. I mentioned earlier that the original bill was restricted to kindergarten through third grade students, but McGinnis is commenting on the more recent development in which the law is now applicable to all students from kindergarten through 12th grade. The point of intersectionality is that we are all constituted by various facets and they work together to define us. Where we're from, our mother tongue, our race, our religious beliefs, and yes, our sexuality are all part of that package. Those who support the new law say that there is no reason for instruction on sexual orientation or gender identity to be part of K-12 education. Full stop. That's a quote, by the way. But how is it possible for children to come to understand themselves without any kind of education on matters of sexuality and gender orientation? The conservative response is simple. This is the job of the parents. However, the reality is it's really hard for parents to have the talk or to talk about the birds and the bees. Many parents simply avoid the subject. I was given almost no instruction from my parents on this subject, and I don't think I'm alone in that. While I don't hold some grudge against my parents for not telling me some really important stuff, I do think it made figuring out who I was, including my sexuality, but much more than that, just made, made it really difficult. To put that another way, I don't want any student to be in the place of ignorance such that defining oneself becomes either impossible or extremely difficult. I've made the point that I don't think DeSantis is much concerned with truth or justice. But he does have a very specific concern. He's against what he calls woke. I promise that we'll have an episode on wokeness, where the idea comes from, what it means, and how it works in practice. But for now, here's DeSantis' definition of woke. The belief there are systematic injustices in American society and the need to address them. Does DeSantis simply not think that there are such injustices? 
You don't need to do a lot of analysis to come to the conclusion that American society is full of injustice, though I should very quickly add that I've never lived anywhere where there weren't injustices. The idea that somehow the United States or Florida just happens to have gotten everything right in terms of justice seems like a non-starter. Derrida famously insisted that justice was not deconstructible because it is precisely the notion we use to deconstruct or evaluate or to change current practices of what counts as justice. When we say that the law is unjust, we are using some kind of ideal of justice to make that point. Derrida's point is that any given society is going to be somewhere on the scale between injustice and justice. Some are closer to justice, some are further away. But here's the problem. If injustices cannot even be talked about, how could there be any change? And that's really DeSantis' program in a nutshell. Make it impossible for children to have any instruction on anything that might signal an injustice and thus keep them in the dark. We've been talking a good deal about what educators want, but what do children want? Let me give you an example from my own teaching. One of the things you often have to teach in an Intro to Philosophy course is titled The Problem of Evil. It sounds complicated, but it's actually pretty simple. It goes like this. If God's omniscient, well, then that means God knows everything. So we can't say that God is somehow unaware that injustice or suffering occurs in the world. But God is also supposed to be omnipotent, which is usually defined so that God can do anything. Further, at least in the Christian understanding of God, God is said to be good and loving. So the problem is very simply this. How could an omniscient, omnipotent, all-loving God allow injustice and suffering to occur? That problem used to drive my students crazy, and it's probably the most obvious reason why people reject the existence of such a God. But as a professor, what am I to do? I could simply avoid the topic or provide answers that would make the problem seem to go away, but that would have been dishonest. I am not going to lie to my students. So I would tell them how the problem worked, in other words, why it's a problem. Then I provided a list of seven ways of dealing with the problem, and then I explained the respective difficulties with each of those seven ways, as well as ways to respond to those difficulties. My goal was simply to get them to understand the problem and then get them to consider the implications in trying to respond. That is what being honest as a teacher is. It's the same problem here. All societies have structural elements that are not completely just or fair. Many societies work hard to reduce or remove those injustices. But the idea that teachers should simply keep quiet about injustice seems fundamentally wrong. I have to say that it's also fundamentally anti-Christian. You might think, well, that's a, that's a strong way of putting it. You, couldn't you just say non-Christian? But I think that would be to keep quiet about the injustice of distorting the teachings of Jesus. DeSantis was raised Catholic, but he's largely kept quiet about his own belief. The publication Insider describes him as a practicing Catholic who has positioned himself as a defender of the Christian faith, though that seems more like a rhetorical flourish. How exactly is DeSantis defending the Christian faith? If his way is by pretending that injustice doesn't happen, then he's no friend of Jesus, who never kept quiet about injustice. As you can see by now, DeSantis doesn't seem to be concerned about justice. But what's even more worrying is that he doesn't seem to be concerned about truth either. 
Here it's helpful to turn to a recent interview that Ezra Klein conducted with Carlos Lazada titled, What We Learned Reading Ron DeSantis' Books. It's not uncommon for presidential hopefuls to write autobiographical pieces or visionary pieces, often one and the same, to explain who they are and what they hope to accomplish. DeSantis' recent book is titled The Courage to be Free, Florida's Blueprint for America's Revival. Think about the terms in that title, courage, freedom, revival. But what exactly do those mean in this context? Lazada puts it in these terms. It's the courage to go after his enemies. This book is, by and large, an enemies list. And for DeSantis, that's the news media, which he always prefaces with the corporate media or legacy media. It's big tech, which he calls the censorship arm of the left. The administrative state, or its COVID-era spin-off, which is the biomedical security state led by Anthony Fauci. And the elite universities that he attended, such as Harvard and Yale. There are a lot of convenient boogeyman in this book, and the biggest one, of course, is wokeness. Florida is where woke goes to die has become his go-to line. And I count every five or six pages there's a reliable assault on the woke or on wokeness. And so in terms of courage, that's his courage. The courage that he's beating his chest about is the courage to assault his various enemies. Think about that for a moment. For DeSantis, courage is about destroying enemies. Lozada defines DeSantis' position as populist, but he means this in a particular sense. The first aspect is anti-elitist. DeSantis is against the news media, big tech, the administrative state, and the elite universities that he went to. I've never quite understood the attitude of people who attend so-called elite schools, but then try to pretend that they're against elitism. I don't see how you can have it both ways. The second aspect is anti-pluralism, which Lozada defines as exclusionary, that only some of the people are counted as the people. When DeSantis claims that he represents the interests of people in Florida, he's certainly not concerned about adolescents who are trying to figure out who they are and where they came from. And that is a terrible injustice for any child or student. One of the problems that I encountered teaching at a conservative evangelical institution is that the vast majority of my students had never felt any freedom to disagree, at least openly and frankly, with their parents or their pastors and the authority figures in their lives. What I saw over and over is that students would feel they had no right to questions. For those that dared to ask, often their first sentence was simply, might I ask you a question? They needed to establish that in talking to me, they were actually free to ask questions. One of the common responses of my students in taking philosophy courses with me was that they didn't know it was possible to ask the kinds of questions we philosophers take to be routine. But I should mention that our philosophy students still needed to be careful when they took courses in other departments. How did I know that? Because people from the Bible Theology Department and the English Department came to me since I was, at that point, the chair of the philosophy department to complain that the philosophy students were asking too many questions, particularly too many deep and probing questions. When I spoke to the representatives of these departments, I really had to suppress my urge to say, isn't it wonderful to have engaged students who are thoughtful and really want the truth? 
from my perspective, I wanted to cultivate that ability to ask questions, to create a space in which students could feel safe to talk about things they didn't understand. I've talked about my own curiosity growing up, and a big part of that was wanting to ask questions, to make sense of things. Now, I want to close by noting two more things about DeSantis' crusade as described by him. The first is what Lozada says about those who follow Trump. What I've always thought about the Trumpist energy is that it's not about necessarily believing the things he says. It's not about belief, it's about allegiance. Even believing or claiming to accept a proven lie or something on which Trump might change his mind, and so you change along with him, shows that it's really not about holding on to a true core conviction. It's about showing what team you're on and sticking it to the other side. Lozada makes clear that what he's saying about Trump is also true of DeSantis. What makes that rather frightening is that if allegiance is the only thing that matters, then truth and justice simply fall by the wayside. If following someone means simply accepting everything they say, no matter how outrageous or untrue, there's no there there. There's no, nothing to such a view. The other thing that Ezra Klein notes is that most books written by politicians or potential politicians make mention of their ability to work with those with whom they disagree. As he puts it, DeSantis' book is one of the first of these that I've read that really doesn't try to do this. His point is that most of these political books include things like, and here's a place where I cross the aisle, or here's a place where I really understand what the other side is thinking, and I'm, I'm sympathetic to it. Instead, Klein says that the main message of DeSantis' book is simply, I will crush them and will hear the lamentations of their families. Despite its subtitle, Florida's Blueprint for America's Revival, there is no blueprint other than making sure that teachers and students can't really talk about what's true, and that is an injustice. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. Please join us next week.